The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, new focus on wealth with certified financial planner, Chad Burton, drawing from his 28-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New focus on wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for new focus on wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you have a money question for the show, shoot me an email. It's chad at chadburton.com. That's chad at chadburton.com. You check out uh, the website. There is an event sign up. I've uh, got an event. This time it's a Saturday. I haven't done a Saturday for a long time. So Rob Black and I are going to be at the Crown Plaza in Foster City. Um, and going over the seven tests of retirement readiness. So make sure you sign up for that. Um, let's do a quick market update. So for those podcast listeners out there doing this as of, you know, before the market opens on September 27th. So these are September 26, 2023 numbers. So we've had a little bit of a pullback in both stocks and bonds in the last oh, week and a half, two weeks or so. So S&P 500 was pushing close to 19% positive for the year. We pulled back. Right now, we're looking at the S&P 500. It's up 12.61% for the year. Now, week after week, we've been comparing the S&P 500 to the NASDAQ. And if we look at the NASDAQ using QQQ, which is an ETF that represents investing in the NASDAQ, very similar allocation these days. This is the closest I can remember where the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are so similar in holdings. Because the top stocks in there are stocks like Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Amazon. The tech stocks, are, both indexes are very tech heavy. Invest the QQQ or the NASDAQ has always been tech heavy. But it's even higher market cap weighting in terms of more of your money is in those top stocks. So the NASDAQ is up 33.6% for the year. All right. So if you have less exposure to those tech stocks, the S&P 500, which is a representation of the largest 500 companies in, companies in America, however, it's market cap weighted. So you still have a lot of money in Microsoft and Apple and NVIDIA and a couple other stocks is up 12.61%. Now, if you look at a more representation of the overall stock market in terms of if you look at the S&P 500, how is the S&P 500 truly doing as a group? You can look at RSP, which is an ETF by Invesco. It's an equal weight S&P 500 fund, where if you put in 500 bucks, you'd have about a dollar invested in the largest 500 companies in America. That's flat for the year. It's up only 1.22% for the year. So most investors in this are fully in the NASDAQ. If they had more of a mix, equity is probably up around 10% to 11, to 10 to 12% for the year. Because if you look at across the board, Rarely do people just invest in the NASDAQ or just invest in the S&P 500. You have uh, large cap, small cap, mid cap, international emerging markets in your equity portfolio. So let's look at them. So far for the year, emerging markets, flat. Up barely at 0.41% for the year. However, if you look at the EFA ETF, EFA is the ETF that I'm looking at here. 
And that is overseas markets, more developed countries, right? Really outperformed so far the S&P 500 up 6.58%. If you look at the S&P 500 in an equal weighted category, right? So it hasn't outperformed the S&P 500 index, but in terms of the overall market has, they already kind of went through recessionary levels. So not, not too bad of returns over there. If we look at small cap stocks with the Russell 2000, up only 1.12% for the year. And bonds, even though rates are higher, rates have gone up even more. So the when you have a bond, you have the income that is paid from that bond, but then you also have the price of the bond moves. And the price of a bond moves down when interest rates go up because it becomes less attractive because newer bonds are going to pay people more. So the total return of AGG, which is the uh, U.S. aggregate bond ETF, so Barclays aggregate bond ETF, so it represents kind of a, a big, huge um, index of bonds out there in the market, down nearly 1% for the year. All right, now, what's going on here? So we have a situation where if we look at the last quarter earnings report of the S&P 500 as a whole, we saw actually a decline. We see have seen inflation, and so rates have continued to go up. We got a pullback in the market in the recent weeks of, like I said, around 6% on stocks. Um, rates on bonds went up, so bond values went down. And the Fed's still battling inflation. We still have employment numbers that are pretty impressive, although there's been a lot of stuff like new home starts and some other issues that have come out that show we're going into a soft patch. Not necessarily a hardcore recession, but a softer period of time. And have stocks already kind of done, have stocks already hit somewhat of a recessionary level? Stocks will decline anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20 to 30% on a hardcore recession. You have even more on such a, like a global credit crisis that we had in 2008. And I do want to talk about, when I talk about this, I'm just talking about now, right? One of the, things I'm going to tell you is that since like 2006, July, 2006, the S P 500 total return is over like 750%. So the market treats you really well over time, but we're getting into this interesting situation where bond rates are up so high, they're creating competition for stocks and yields are, haven't been this attractive since like 2006. So are stocks already showing us that, um, you know, have they hit a point where we're at recessionary levels? We have to go all the way back to January of 2022 to see what stocks have really done, because that was when stocks reacted very negatively, especially tech stocks, to the fact that rates were going up to fight inflation. So if we look all the way back to January 3rd, 2022, the first trading day in 2022, the NASDAQ is still down nearly 11%. The S&P 500 is still down nearly 8.4%. Emerging markets down 20%. International developed down 9%. The Russell 2000 small and mid-cap US stocks down 20.6%. And bonds are down 13.2% since January 2022. So arguably, this has been one of the toughest 12, uh, you know, we're not quite two years into this, but for a balanced investor, this is a point where since January 2022, both stocks and bonds have gone down, which is why I constantly preach for those going into retirement. You always have to have two to three years worth of safe money of, of two to three years worth of portfolio draws sitting somewhere safe. And guess what? 
we can earn 5% or more on safe liquid money now. So good time to make sure you're set up for that as you're going into retirement. So, and even if you look at a balanced, like a 60-40 general fund, like VBIX with Vanguard, um, to give you an idea of what that fund has done since January 2022, where you have a 60-40 mix of you know 60% U.S. stocks, 40% bonds, it's down 11.43% since that period of time. Now, like I said, the S&P 500, since July of 2006, the last time we had high interest rates and an inverted yield curve, a significantly inverted yield curve, the, the S&P 500 is up 751%, despite the huge decline in 2008, despite 2022, the market takes care of you over time, but there's volatility here. All right, so you have to keep that in mind when you're doing your financial planning. The other issue is also when you go through these numbers and you see, okay, the, re the reason why I'm tracking this from back in January is to say, okay, once we do get, hey, yes, we have had a recession, stocks tend to recover even kind of prior to that. So we're, one of the first places I always look is how bad has it been for small cap stocks? Because those typically have huge recoveries. Smaller companies are dealing, have a tougher time dealing with interest rates and a U.S. recession than larger companies because larger companies have globally diversified revenue. Um, you know, they have easier access to borrow money in order to grow. And so small caps tend to get hit a little bit harder sooner. And we're seeing that with the Russell 2000 down 20.6% since January of 2022. And I'm putting this in perspective because, because people think the market's done so well this year, but it's a recovery play on growth stocks. Right. And so it's still, you know, the, the fact that the market kind of looked forward and said, yeah, we're going to go into a slow period here. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcase is always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass. The will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirado Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiratopass.com. All right, so I was talking about, you know, the idea that if we look at the stock market, especially things like small cap stocks, since January 2022 and how it's reacted since we went into a period of time where okay, the Fed's got to fight inflation, they have to raise interest rates, they have to try to slow down the economy, the, in, the yield curve inverted meaning the two-year treasuries are paying more than the 10-year treasuries, um, have stocks reacted? And yes, they have, if you look all the way back to January. Like I said, the, the Russell 2000 is down 20.6% during that period of time. And during a recession, you tend to see a decline of 20 to 40%. Now, let's look at P-E ratios too, because that's another way to look at the market. I think the S&P 500 forward P-E ratio is still close to 18 after this recent pullback, 18 or 19. If we look at like, um, I'll take a look at a couple of Vanguard ETFs and none of these are ever a recommendation. It's just easy for me to look at charts and information. Um, I like to use white charts, which is a service that I pay for. So an, a Vanguard ETF that's kind of an, a blend ETF is VB. The price to earnings ratio forward P according to white charts is 14.3. So way less than the S&P 500. VBR, which is a small cap value ETF, is forecast P ratio of 11.82. Now, I will say that that's almost 20% financials and 9% real estate. So that's why that sold off pretty heavily. 
Um, VBK, which is Vanguard Small Cap Growth ETF, that's pretty elevated at 24.72. So very little financials and heavy tech. So it just shows that there's been a tech rally and, and tech and growth probably rallied a bit too much this year based on what's going on in the market. Now, obviously, the AI revolution is helping that out, right? And so that's where the revenue growth is. Another way to look at it is if we look at the Spider's S&P 600 small cap ETF, which is a blend ETF, the symbol is SPSM. That's flat on the year. It's down 17.6% since January of 2022. Forecast PE ratio of only 12.93. So when you start going through these rough patches, and let's say you're a person that's sitting with a bunch of cash on the sidelines, and you say, what do I start averaging into? Tech has shown you, for example, that you tend to want to go into the stuff that has done really well over time, but just got hit the hardest, right? Because the NASDAQ, as I mentioned before, even though it's up 33.6% for the year, it was hammered in 2022. So we're still down on the NASDAQ 10.78 since January of 2022. Big rebound. Oversold last year, big rebound. Now, so I'm, you know, just personally, you know, eyeing small caps. So I always look at small caps to lead into a recession and to lead out of a recession, right? And we'll, what kind of recession are we going to have? Is it just going to be a slowdown because the Fed's kind of engineered a soft landing? We'll see. We'll see. So far, the only things that's broke from the Fed's raising rates, because very rarely do the Fed's raise rates that quickly without something breaking. We had that regional bank issue that was handled pretty well. Um, you know, tough on a lot of people, obviously, with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, what's interesting is REITs. When you look at REITs in terms of 2023, you know, almost 10 months into the year of a year where rates have gone up, typically REITs, real estate investment trusts, those are, you know, companies, uh, or ETFs that hold ETFs that hold companies that are, you know, deal with real estate. And so everybody knows about the pain in office real estate investment trusts, office REITs, right? A lot of spaces going empty, leases not being renewed, a lot of commercial loans, you know, commercial loans tend to get, they have to get refinanced every five to 10 years because that's usually the rate lock. Um, so a lot of loans that are going to be refinanced at much higher rates that are going to affect negatively the cash flow on a lot of real estate. So has it reacted so far? REITs are only down. If I look at VNQ, which is Vanguard's real estate and ETF, you could look at RWR, IYR. Those are other ETFs that are real estate investments. So VNQ is only down about 6% this year. But if we look from January of 2022, it's down 30%. 30%. Now, a lot of the return of REITs, real estate investment trust, comes from the dividend yield. And so... The dividend yield on a lot of those REITs isn't a heck of a lot higher than a two or a 10-year treasury at this point. So that's why it's like people are, oh, why would I own that? And there's a bunch of loans that have to be refinanced. I'll just own a two or a 10-year treasury or some T-bills, T-bonds, T-notes, things like that. I would argue that they've reacted pretty poorly already and that everybody knows about the real estate issues. Certain real estate investment trusts will have the ability to go into these offices 
that are empty and vacant that nobody wants to work out of anymore and buy them at, you know, 60, 70 cents on the dollar, let's say, change them into, let's say, high-end retail at the bottom, high-end living at the top, and and eventually people will come back and live there. It will happen. It, the stuff ebbs and flows. So that's an interesting area to look at. A lot of people have been pretty light on real estate investment trust for the last several years because the rates are so low and the fear of rates going up was negative on, on the, that type of an area. So very interesting to watch some of this stuff going on, but I, I just like to put it in perspective. Great year so far this year, but it's really making up for a real rough year last year. One of the things I also wanted to talk about today is bond rate reinvestment risk. Sounds kind of funky, right? Bond rate reinvestment risk. The first thing I need to do to tell you what this means is to talk about the inverted yield curve that we still have, right? What does an inverted yield curve mean? Well, when most of the time when people are talking about the yield curve, they're comparing a two-year U.S. government treasury. That means when you loan money to the U.S. government, it's considered the safest investment in the world. Um, and so you can loan money to the government by buying treasury bonds. And so, for example, if you buy the 10-year U.S. treasury bond, well, let me first give you um, the two-year rate. So if you loan money to the government for two years on a two-year bond, you're going to get 5.09%. Now, typically when you loan money to a person or an entity for a longer period of time, you're going to get a higher interest rate, right? Because your money's tied up. You have more opportunity loss risks by putting the money elsewhere. So typically in normal times, the 10-year treasury is going to pay us more money. The 10-year bond with the U.S. government should pay you more money, right? Well, right now it's at 4.55%. So we still have an inverted yield curve. So a lot of people are like, well, right now, I know I can buy T-bills and T-notes at over 5%. Why don't I just put all of my bond money in short-term bonds because rates are still going up? You have to think about reinvestment risk. Hi, this is Chad Burton. If you have questions about retirement and investing, it's time to get some answers. My website, chadburton.com, has a ton of resources. There are downloads to help you determine how long your money will last in retirement, links to our webinars, and several videos discussing everything from retirement planning to tax-efficient investing, estate planning, insurance, and even saving for your kid's college. While you're there, also check out our tax planning and estate planning services and our video explaining our online wealth management tool. You can find links to the podcast at chadburton.com and please like my Facebook page, New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. This invaluable resource is able to show the values and allocations of all your accounts regardless of where they're held. Information is updated each day at the end of market close and these new numbers are fed into the financial projections we've created for our clients with the goal of constant financial clarity. You can find links to the podcast at chadburton.com and please like my Facebook page, New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. All right. So what I wanted to talk about today is bond rate reinvestment risk. And people are looking at the fact that the two-year treasury is paying 5.24% when the 10-year treasury is paying 5.13%. So people are like, why would I loan 
the government more money for a longer period of time and get paid less. Well, there's a couple issues here. If interest rates have to go down in the future because the Fed's raised rates too much, you have a higher interest rate reinvestment risk. Also, if rates go down, you're going to get a better price increase out of a 10-year bond than a two-year bond, right? So let me give you an example of bond rate reinvestment risk. When we look at a situation like we're at today, the most similar time in the bond market would be 2006. That's when you could get about the same rate on the two-year treasury as you could today. Um, so in, so again, right now, the two-year treasury is paying 5.09%. The 10-year treasury is paying 4.55%. Back in 2006, I think I was looking at July 2006, the two-year is paying 5.24%. The 10-year was paying 5.13%. So inverted, not quite as inverted to, as today, but still an inverted yield curve. So people back then were saying, well, why don't I just invest in two-year bonds paying 5.24%? Why would I buy bonds 10-year paying only 5.13? Well, with a two-year bond, every time it matures, the risk is that you're reinvesting at lower rates every time the bond matures. So you have five different risk events compared to a 10-year bond, right? So if you bought that two-year treasury in 2006, you got 5.24% for two years. In 2008, when that bond matured, you're reinvesting at 2.44% because rates went down to fight the Great Recession. In 2010, your bond matured again. Rates were still extremely low because of the Great Recession. So you reinvested for another two years at 0.61%. Rates continued to drop. In 2012, you reinvested again. Your two-year bond was only paying 0.3%. Rates finally ticked up a little bit in 2014. You reinvested at 0.49%. And your last one in 2016, the two-year bond was paying 0.59%. You would have been much better off by buying that 10-year bond paying 5.13%. You would have regretted it for two years and then you would have been like, I'm the smartest person in the world. So that's why right now when we're talking about building a bond portfolio, which is extremely important as you get 10 years from retirement or closer. And, you know, even if you're 45 bonds or, you know, having a sprinkling of bonds in your portfolio is pretty attractive at this point. Um, that's why you don't just own short-term treasuries right now. A lot of people are doing that, but you really still want to go farther out on the curve, right? Now, I will say if you're managing an entire portfolio, this so having some in the two years back then, I gave an example where the two year, it wasn't attractive, but I do have to point out that as those two year bonds matured starting in 2008, all the way through 2016, many of those points of maturity, when those bonds matured, stocks were way down and you had proceeds, you had cash ready as those bonds matured to buy more stocks. And the total return of the S&P 500 since July 6, 2006 is 751%. So the S&P 500 with dividends included being reinvested is up 751% since July of 2006. That includes the Great Recession. 
It includes COVID. It includes 2022. The stock market will take great care of you over time. And a lot of people are afraid to buy both stocks and bonds right now because interest rates have been going up and the returns have been awful. But in 2006, we went through, you know, 2000, October 2007 and March of 2009 was a huge stock market decline. And even with that decline, as of today, S&P 500 is up 751%. So a couple of points, continue to buy stocks, continue to buy bonds, but don't just buy the short term uh, end of the curve. All right. Um, when you're laddering, I mean, Hey, look, there's, there's a couple of different options here. I mean, first of all, with your safe money, it is a good time to buy treasuries. So for example, you could do a 24 month treasury ladder right now where you can, you know, go into a Schwab or a Fidelity account or go directly to treasurydirect.gov and you could take you know, let's say a half a million dollars and you could buy, it's much easier to do it if you want to do a proper monthly ladder where for 24 months, every month you have one twenty-fourth of your account available maturing and T-bills or T-bills uh, or T-notes coming to um, starting yield of 5.34% on a 24 month treasury ladder. So if you did that with a half a million dollars, you'd have $21,000 or so coming due every month ready for you to spend. And you can earn over 5%. There's also liquid FDIC insured money market accounts paying 5% right now. Uh, so you do definitely need your safe money. And in your portfolio, having some short-term bonds is great. But what about corporate bonds? Right now, there's still high-quality corporate bonds trading at a bit of a discount. In other words, you pay less than $100 for the bond. Um, starting yield around 5.9%. And if rates go down, returns could be even higher because you're buying bonds at a discount. There's mortgage-backed securities, there's TIPS, there's uh, international bonds, emerging market bonds. You still want to own everything. So even when I've talked about laddering a bond portfolio, whether it's corporates, um, I was liking the one to five-year corporate bond ladder. Now I would go all the way out to a 10-year corporate bond ladder where every year you have a bond coming due for 10 years. But even when I do that, I'm still using actively managed funds to buy other areas of the market where the bond traders are very active in terms of where they're buying, tax loss harvesting, other things like that. So the point here is, is that there's almost just as much risk of just throwing everything into short-term bonds just because rates are higher because you have that reinvestment risk, okay? So you still want to build the proper portfolio. It's called bond rate reinvestment risk that kind of happens when there is an inverted yield curve. So keep that in mind. But also keep in mind, the S&P 500 has returned 751% since July 2006, so... Stocks will take care of you over time. We've had a volatile couple of years here, but stocks will take very good care of you over time if you don't react in a panic mode. So for example, those that sold in 2022, once the stock market declined, they they got scared. They go, you know, interest rates growing up. I got to get out. I got to go all buy nothing but precious metals. They're regretting that because things rebounded rather quickly during COVID and again this year. All right. Moving on, because I was going to hit this towards the last segment, but 
The other thing that I wanted to talk about today is long-term care and nursing home costs. I received another email yesterday from a longtime client whose 87-year-old father um, is uh, fighting esophageal cancer. And that's a scary time. Um, but I've gone through different phases of this in my career because when I got into the business, I was 19 years old and I was working with my grandfather who was in his mid sixties. So most of his clients were actually older than him. And a very common call that I would get from our clients would be my husband or my wife just went into a nursing home. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. What am I going to do? I'm going to be broke. I'm going to lose my home. Um, and that fear that comes with that idea that people realize when somebody goes into a nursing home situation that there's very little coverage, especially after 90 to hundred days for with your Medicare and supplemental insurance. After that, the cost is typically on your own. And so I want to go over that type of planning. So when you're doing your retirement plan, you have to run different scenarios that say if you or your spouse goes into a nursing home, do you have enough money to pay for it? So let's say if you go into a nursing home when you're 80 years old, you spend five years in the nursing home, how much money is left for your spouse? Are they going to be impoverished? Um, and you have to run those scenarios so you can decide what the plan of action is. Do you look at long-term care insurance? Do you look at a, a hybrid long-term care insurance policy where you have life insurance if you don't use it? But if you go into a nursing home or need home health care, the death benefit gets paid early. Or will you eventually sell the home or do a reverse mortgage on the home in order to pay for that cost? And so it's important that you know, and especially, you know, we have all these people turning, you know, 55 to 65 to 65, you know, 10,000 people a day turning 65 because of the boomers. They're dealing with this with their parents now. And so I was getting these calls way back, you know, 25 years ago. Now I'm getting them again as the second generation is now helping their parents deal with the costs of nursing home and home health care that Medicare and your supplemental insurance just don't cover. So after the break, we're going to talk about things called spousal impoverishment laws, where there are laws to protect the well spouse that's living at home while you qualify the ill spouse for Medicaid. In California, that's called Medi-Cal. In other states, it's called Medicaid. And so there are laws in place so that you don't have somebody in a nursing home and then somebody else that's in poverty getting kicked out of their home. Now, it's not meant to protect assets for the heirs, but it is meant to protect the well spouse living at home. And what happens if you or, or your parents, one of them goes into a nursing home and maybe they haven't, they don't have a huge net worth. And so they're worried about how do I pay for this and still stay my, in my own home? How do I not get kicked out into the streets and become poor when my spouse is receiving nursing home care? Well, that's what Medicaid is for. In California, it's called Medi-Cal. And there are, each state has spousal impoverishment rules which create guidelines on how much income and net worth can their well spouse keep while still maintaining a life in their home. Um, and every state's different in terms of how much of the home is protected for potentially the heirs. The laws have gotten much more strict. When I was doing this a lot real early in my career, uh, you know, back in the late 90s, essentially what you could do is if you had one spouse go into a nursing home and the other spouse was really scared of, you know, becoming a person in poverty. 
there was specific types of annuities where you could take the ill spouse's liquid assets, place them in an annuity um, that would pay uh, it'd be that would pay a monthly income to the the well spouse and protect those assets essentially. And a lot of those rules have changed. A lot of insurance companies stopped wanting to deal with those types of annuities because a lot of states changed their laws that said, okay, even after that, at the second death, we're going to come back after what we put out in terms of costs. We're going to come back after those annuities. We're going to come back after a certain amount of the home after the second spouse dies. And so laws changed. I mean, especially in California, those annuity rules changed after 2004 and again on 2017. So what do you do if you if your parents call you and say, hey, one of us is going into a nursing home. We don't know how we're going to pay for it. Well, the first thing they need to do is go to a really good elder law attorney that specializes in things like wills, trusts, and Medicaid planning. If you go to, um, there's a site where you can find an elder law attorney near you. It's the, uh, just just Google search. Uh, how to find an elder law attorney. For example, I was finding one for a client whose father was in Indiana. So he goes to org, and you can find elder law attorneys near you. These are attorneys that specialize in this stuff. Um, spousal impoverishment protections are called, you know, they're called Medi-Cal rules in California. They're designed for married couples or registered domestic partners to prevent the impoverishment of one spouse when the other enrolls in Medi-Cal to pay for nursing home care and home and community-based services. Now, there's a whole bunch of planning that has to be done, but in California, the Community Spouse Resource Allowance, the CSRA, the standard amount is, I believe in 2023, 148620 So there's a certain amount of assets that can be protected for the spouse, the well spouse, and then a monthly maintenance needs allowance of $3,716. So there's certain things that you can do using an elder law attorney to help qualify the ill spouse for Medi-Cal. It's called Medicaid in other states. So a lot of listeners in California, so I'm concentrating a little bit on Medi-Cal right now. The other thing that I told the client to do is I said, hey, is your dad a veteran by any chance? And he said, yes, he is. All right. Well, what about VA benefits? You can go to va.gov, um, you know, it just, or it's probably better to do va.gov, uh, long-term care. Google that because the URL that I'm looking at is quite long. Uh, but there are some benefits here. Now, I will say that if, if we're planning here for Medi-Cal or Medicaid or VA, long-term care benefits. This isn't the type that you want to plan to get on and care that you want to have. There can be certain situations on Medicaid or Medicare where when you end up in a full nursing home, which is 24-hour care type of a situation, you might be sharing a room, for example. That's not how you necessarily want to go out. So for those that are listening that are younger, that you're dealing with this with your parents, have a plan for yourself. Part of a good retirement plan, part of the seven tests that you want to do before you retire is what happens if you or a spouse goes into a nursing home. You might be wealthy enough where you have so much assets left over for your kids that it's okay because you can self-insure. You can run a scenario where let's say you go in for five or 10 years when you're 80, how much is left over your spouse? There's still a lot of money left over. You're good to go. No big deal. You're fine. Um, if not, then you say, okay, I, I need to look at long-term care insurance. The industry is a bit of a mess. Usually the best place to buy 
long-term care insurance is from your employer as long as it's portable after you leave and you retire because you have tend to have less rate increases, but everybody else that's bought long-term care insurance in the last 10 to 15 years have had huge rate increases. As I've mentioned on previous shows, those types of life insurance policies that allow you to use the death benefit while you're still alive, if you need it for home health care and nursing home, have gotten a lot better. And it's something that it may not be the best investment in the world, but some people are very concerned about it. Some people have a very... Uh, like, you know, if you've got a history of both parents had Alzheimer's or dementia, then it can be something that you really want to focus on. And if you don't get the insurance, then you need to talk to your spouse and your kids about what is plan B. Maybe plan B is I want to have every single dollar that I own spent to have home health care for as long as I can. And, you know, if you run out of money and you run out of assets in the house by doing a, you know, selling your home or doing a reverse mortgage, then that's when you eventually get on Medicaid, Medicaid or Medi-Cal. But you have to have a plan and have a discussion for that. It's really difficult too, a lot of times for a married couple. And this is where a reverse mortgage or a family loan can come into play. If you got a married couple and the majority of their assets that are left are their home, maybe they have a, you know, $2 million home in the Bay Area that they bought for a hundred thousand years and years ago. If they sell that house, they can exclude the first half a million dollars of gain, but they're paying a huge tax on the sale of that home. In California, when the first person dies, everything gets a step up in basis. So a lot of times you might you know, try to do a family loan or a reverse mortgage to use the equity in the home to pay for the care. And then once that person passes, the house gets a step up in basis and then you can sell it tax-free and the surviving spouse could you know, go move into assisted living or you know, some other type of situation. So careful planning, you got to make sure that elder law attorney to make sure you have a fresh healthcare directive, power of attorney, will and trust in in place. And then they can help with what route do I take if I need long-term care? Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show. You can find me on all the podcast platforms, including podcasts. If you type it into your Apple phone, you can find me at chadburton.com. You can request a meeting with me or one of my certified financial planner practitioners. Have a great day.